Hello, and welcome to Teacher Tales, a podcast from the spirit of teaching. This is your host, Linda Markley, and I invite you to join me and my guests as we get curious, explore, discover, and learn more about what is really at the heart of teaching. In each episode, we will hear the story of a teacher, what called them to teach, what are their greatest joys and challenges in teaching, what inspires them, and what are their hopes, dreams, and vision for the education of children. We will learn more about the greatest lessons they have taught and also the greatest lessons they have learned. No checklists, no standards, no reports, no paperwork, and no data. Just stories from their hearts to our hearts on a journey to celebrate what really matters in the true spirit of teaching. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Teacher Tales. And I have to tell you, this is probably going to be my favorite one of all of them I've done. Sorry, every other guest, but this person has a very special place in my heart. Um, and as I told him, he is like a red thread through the tapestry of my life. And he's come in and out of my life many times. He was a student back in eighth grade, but I'm going to let him introduce himself and tell you a little bit about where he is right now. Hey everybody. My name is Ethan Stonerook. I, um, live in North Carolina and I'm a assistant professor professor in the physician, physician assistant studies program at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. Um, I came uh, to this position by a very circuitous route, which I'm sure we'll get into during this podcast, but I'm really happy to be here. Well, thank you. And um, I'm so happy that you're here. We're going to go along this little, what I want to say is a hero's journey where you had a calling and I had you in eighth grade in Spanish. Um, and what you're doing now, it's a little bit of a different guess, too, because you're teaching medical students, but you're still a teacher. And it doesn't have to be the, the same context of high school or elementary or what we typically think of. It's right. another different perspective and also about the bigger lessons of life and our life's journey and how we learn and, and uh, how we weave in and out of people's lives and learn from them because we're all teachers and learners in life until the day we die. So that's right. Excited yeah. to have this conversation. So let's start in eighth grade where um, you came into my Spanish class and uh, you like to share learning every day from Jeopardy because we would learn about culture and different things. And then it would show up as a Jeopardy question. And that excited you because you said earlier that um, maybe learning wasn't really fun for you or you didn't see any meaning behind it. So you want to talk a little bit about what I, what I told you that, that kind of made learning more fun or made it meaningful? Yeah. So I'm so impressed by your memory. Uh, so Nathan, my best friend who you probably remember, Nathan and I would call each other every night at 730 and watch Jeopardy together and, um, and sort of compete. And, uh, and you're right, that, that started probably in like seventh or eighth grade. And, uh, you know, Jefferson was a junior high at the time. So I was there seventh through ninth. And like most teenage boys, I was not super interested in learning because I wasn't supposed to be, um, at least the culture that I was growing up in, uh, you know, education was not the cool thing to, to be interested in as a kid. Although I had always been an inquisitive kid, you know, really paying attention to 
the world around me, especially the natural world around me, but then sort of developed that sort of teenage chip on my shoulder. And then here I come into your Spanish class and you started out the very first session speaking some soliloquy all in Spanish that none of us understood. And we thought, or at least I thought, um, wow, it's incredible to think that I could do that at some point. And, um, and, and what ensued was two years with you in eighth and ninth grade where um, learning, you used the textbook, but it seemed only as a reference. And most of it was these activities and experiences that happened in and out of class that um, evoked something in my brain that had, had sort of fallen asleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so I told you um, when you would share and you would teach it to the class, what you had learned on Jeopardy with Nathan and everything. And I directly told you, you will make a great teacher someday. So how did, how did, how did you receive that? Yeah. So it was in my yearbook at the end of ninth grade, I asked you to sign my yearbook and you wrote, I can vividly picture it now. It's in my bedroom still that you wrote, something and it was in Spanish something along the lines of you will be a teacher one day or I know you'll be a teacher one day it was I took it as somewhat prophetic you know you had kind of become a uh, a big figure in my mind at that point and I thought well I didn't teaching wasn't on my horizon but I guess I'm going to be one because she said so (laughs) it was obviously very impressionable and over the course of the next you know I was 15 I guess when you wrote that over the course of the next um 29 years, 29, no, 19. Uh, I, uh, I sort of took that and ran with it. I always wondered like, well, when is that going to actually manifest? Because I, I wasn't ever teaching. I was a grad assistant for some time at the university of Florida and taught one class and enjoyed it. But, um, but then went on to become a, a PA and thought, well, I guess the prophecy is never going to come true. Um, but here I am teaching at this, at the Wake Forest School of Medicine. I would say how that influenced me over time was it always caused me to ask a question. Um, you know, is there an outlet for me to teach here? And is that what she meant? You know, anytime somebody speaks something over you or into your life that, um, is maybe out of left field, but also pretty encouraging and and shows some belief in you. I think it causes us to at least ask a question, you know, am I capable of something that I, that wasn't on my radar? And, um, and I think it influenced me, you know, over the years to, um, how I interacted with people when I was doing research in grad school, when I was becoming a PA and, and interacting with patients, how do I interact with them in an educational sense? And obviously now as an educator myself, um, the influence you had just, uh, sort of flavored my, characteristics or or personality as a teacher, I think. I think we all um, are, like, if we can see something in someone else and tell them and just share that I really love this about you, or this is the light that's shining from you right now. um, I think that we need to do that because other people see things in us that we, that we don't see in ourselves. And that's how we support each other and hold hands and get through life. That's right. I think very few of us have an objective opinion of, of ourselves. And if we do, we probably should worry. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So let's go back to when you went to the university of Florida and, um, and, and again, I 
was you decided you were going to major in engineering and I ran into your dad at a gas station pumping gas and asked how you were doing and everything. And he said that, well, you were struggling a little bit with your major and et cetera. And then I got a phone call from you where you were so excited to share with me that you had changed your major. So tell us what, what ensued with that, how that all came about. Yeah, so I, I didn't really have a vision for what, what I was going to college to do, but I had to declare a major my freshman year. So I chose engineering, I think because I had enjoyed math and it, you know, I knew it would be a tool in my tool belt, so to speak, but it didn't really match with my personality very well I, I, or my learning style. Um, I'm, I'm not really a very nuts and bolts type person. I'm a big picture per- person that tries to engage the nuts and bolts when, when necessary and I found myself in a Calc three class that was just not um, not in, not uh, encouraging a ton of passion, I would say, and uh, and I thought, well, what when was I passionate about learning? And it was in your Spanish class, so I changed my major to Spanish and quickly realized that a, a college Spanish class wasn't too much different than a college calculus class, and it wasn't um, sort of waking me up the way I, I was hoping it would, and so. Um, then uh, I would say on a whim that spring of my freshman year, I took a class called Introduction to Fishery Science because I liked fishing. So this tells you how much I'm, uh, at least in the past, have been led by whims and, um, and gut feelings that I just took this class because it sounded fun. And there was a guest lecturer who was a really charismatic man from Medellin, Colombia, and he spoke about aquaculture. And I thought, well, I don't know much about aquaculture, but I know I want to hit my wagon to this guy. Um, he was just really fun to be around. So I started volunteering in his lab and, um, and he quickly, uh, kind of took me under his wing, knew that I was passionate about, um, the natural sciences about Spanish and Latin America. And, um, he convinced me to change my major to the environmental sciences. And the next summer we sort of finagled some research money for me to go to Ecuador for the summer and work in a, in a lab right on the coast um, so I was living with only Spanish speakers for the whole summer and, uh, there was a cafeteria, but I would always walk with these other grad students to this woman's house who made bigger and better meals for, for less money. Um, I paid for it on the GI end, but, uh, it was still just a wonderful summer where I was immersed in Spanish language in Latin American culture. Um, and, um, and yeah, so I would, I would say that the influence that that you had on me through that journey was to realize that it, the content wasn't necessarily as important as who I was around, how I was engaging my um, sort of heart and mind in learning rather than the content itself. Mm -hmm. And I just want to point out here that a person doesn't have to necessarily have a teaching degree or be an official teacher as a profession. We all are teachers and learners, and we all have influence over other people. But I think the teacher has that role more powerfully um, in a child's life. And I, right now in the pandemic, teachers are so um, focused on checklists and evaluations, and are we still, their kids are behind. and you know, I have to follow these certain things to make sure that they, you know, get, a, and, and we're forgetting about uh, 
the real reason why teachers are teachers. They're That's kids, right. yeah, that, that need other things besides a math lesson today. And yep. that influence and believing in kids, teachers need to hear that. Teachers need to understand the power that they have beyond a standard, beyond That's right. a checklist. So, so in medical education, we, we work toward broad competencies. You know, do you know how to do a history and physical exam? Do you know how to um, act professionally. So these are broad competencies, but then underneath this is course learning outcomes. And below that for each session, we have instructional objectives. And these are all important things. We need to know how to treat community acquired pneumonia um, or the flu. But what's not being talked about by and large is how do we treat patients? How do we interact with humans? And, um, and we think we know that, but in, it turns out that we're, we're just kind of doing it ad hoc and some folks know it better than others. Um, and so that, that's been a focus of my, my approach, both to patient care and to teaching people who will do patient care. So let's talk about that just a little bit. We'll keep going through your journey, um, but I wanna stop here and talk about what, what you had brought up before we started recording about um, transactional versus relational um, teaching and uh, learning and, um, one of the overarching themes of every guest that I've had on Teacher Tales, uh, the teachers are, they say the relationship is the most important thing, that they're building relationships and they see that bigger picture of their influence and in making a difference in a child's life, whether it's getting them a pair of glasses because their family can't afford glasses for them so that they can see the board better mm -hmm. or you know, gathering, you know, packaged food together in the cafeteria to be able to package it up for the kids to take home over the weekend because they don't have enough food. Um, just telling a kid, I believe in you and you're doing a great job. Let me hold your hand or let me, you know, let me hug you because you've had a rough day or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. So can you yeah, talk I think about that transactional versus relational? Because I love your perspective on it. For sure. So I would say, you know, at the at the end of our lives, we'll look back and, and we will have a story, you know, and hopefully we all are pretty consistently thinking about what, what story is being told about my life or what is the story of my life. And very seldom do the details of that um, involve data points. Um, you know, when Tolstoy writes about Anna Karenina, he's not, he, he leaves a lot of stuff out, a lot of the details, He but he includes relationships. I, I mentioned that just because it's what I'm reading right now, but um, if I look back on the last 39 years of my life, um, it had less to do with, I went to Jefferson junior high school. I went to Merritt Island and then uh, the university of Florida twice and Wake Forest. It was more about the people I encountered there who, um, who saw me for a person. And I, I think, you know, at some age, probably around the time we met, most kids in middle school are asking, who am I and what's significant about me? And, um, that can maybe be affirmed by like getting accepted at an Ivy League school per se, but, um, but usually it's not. I would say that most of us need that to be reflected back at us from, from a human. And, um, and that from, at least from my perspective, I can only speak to my perspective, the most impactful moments and experiences I've had have been when my story is reflected back upon me from another human being. So when you write in that yearbook that you see something in me that I didn't see, I, I always felt like a, an academic misfit. 
is the term I would use, and to some degree still do, but the things that tie me to a reality that I'm not exactly a misfit. I might not fit in some boxes, but I'm not a misfit because um, I've had people like you or Frank Chapman when I was at the University of Florida or certain professors at the PA program at Wake Forest um, or my wife, for example, other people that have spoken in and caused an influence on me that wasn't sort of nuts and bolts uh, binary code. It was, um, you're a human and these are things I see in you. And so my approach to education well, I have to teach to instructional objectives. What is the fabric that wraps those? You know, um, uh, somebody recently used this uh, analogy that her daughter, when she was very little, um, like grade school age, if she hurt herself, she didn't want to be messed with. She didn't want to be talked to or comforted. She would run to her room and wrap herself up in a curtain, in the curtain hanging from her window. And, um, and you know, to really address her hurt, uh, she had to find a way to get her out of the curtain. And to some degree, each student shows up wrapped in some kind of a curtain. And that curtain can just be the effects of living in the world, which is not as it ought to be. It can also be some boundary between us that we don't share. So race, gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation, all these things that are various curtains that we wrap around ourselves to, um, the, and an educator has to somehow get through. And and my buy-in as a learner has a lot to do, a lot more to do with how do you see me as a person than it does with, I have X, Y, and Z to offer you as far as content, and it's up to you to receive it. I think there is some onus on the educator to um, form a, tr a trust and a relationship there that, um, that isn't always done. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that answers the question. But. No, it does. And, and it, you bring up so many great points as far as that teachers can relate to right now as, as far as that transactional, where it's a checklist. It's, did they have to do certain things? They have to follow certain standards, which, yes, is important. But when it comes down to it, and this is what the pandemic has brought out, is that we're human beings and we have all these other different needs. You know, we're all working on Maslow's hierarchy rather than Bloom's taxonomy. Right. Um, um, so all of that is important, um, but teachers need to get back to who they are as well. Like, who am I as a teacher and what, what influence do I have and why did I get into teaching? That's part of why I started the podcast was to get back to those stories, that calling that you're called for it and life you may weave in and out like we just talked about, but um, if you are called to be a teacher and we all have that teacher heart in us, but we take and do it in different ways, different career paths. Uh, but, but we're all called to, to do something and to share our gifts and our, our light in the world and everything. And so for a teacher to see that in a child and to raise awareness to that and support them along the way, that's mm -hmm. really what we're doing. Um, yeah. And, and, and it's and not I, about that grade or, you know, and another thing, just real quick, a point is we focus now with all of the data points and everything on deficit and on what we are lacking rather than looking at these are all the great things that I know about you and that you have done. So mm -hmm. let's work with that. Um, yeah, that's a that's a great point. The idea of what does evaluation teach uh, learners and mm -hmm. Um, so at the Wake PA program, one of the things I fell in love with here as a student is that the grading scale is not A's, B's, C's, D's, and F's. It's honors, competent, concern, and failure. And that competent range is because we want to 
raise up PAs who are competent practitioners of medicine. Um, and all of medical education is going to this because we've realized that reinforcing the A mentality sets up a competition and oftentimes is a burden on students and takes away that chance to really enjoy learning. Whereas if, if I think I'm going to probably end up somewhere between an 85 and a 94, there's a lot of freedom within that to explore things that aren't just the nuts and bolts or the data points. Um, and I would say, you know, we talked a little bit before we started recording about how administration's take on um, leadership can oftentimes be uh, contrasted against an, a, an educator's heart toward, toward education and, and their goals. And that I think sometimes that does play out. Is there a transactional uh, relationship between administration and curriculum and a relational one at the heart of a teacher? And, and I would say one of the beautiful things about my current job is that our, our program director and interim chair are, are both very, not only supportive of, but passionate about speaking to the idea that we want you to address these learning outcomes, but we want you to do it how you see fit. And as long as you're doing that, we love it. You can use poetry to teach this. You can use film to teach this. You can send students out to the hospital to interview uh, patients about their life story to do this. As long as you're addressing the instructional objectives, then they're happy with that. And I would say that that's such a breath of fresh air compared to a previous job I had at a different university where um, administration was super transactional and, and there wasn't really a lot of freedom to be myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, that's what's happening in schools where teachers are so tied to what's being mandated from the district or from the principal, the admin or whatever, and they're not being trusted as professionals to use their own judgment and uh, deliver the content, you know, in their own personal way that they, right. you know, can own and shine through. And, and I think if you look at personality styles of teachers there are those of us maybe like me and you who are so bold to push the envelope you know we mentioned Don Quixote earlier I've always had a quixotic personality about challenging the norms and and saying you know I learn at the at the end of the spectrum or, or whatever um, so I need to teach in that space um, and somebody else who's less confident or less willing to challenge might fall back on well I guess I have to stay within this framework um you know, I think you and I are probably, I can't speak about you, but for me, it's always been, I'm going to push this framework to the outer edge and maybe even cross it a couple of times because I think that's important. And other people really love the, the idea that these are the rules that I have to abide by. And that's really comfortable for me. So I think having some self-awareness is really important. You know, um, if you tend toward following the rules, then maybe flex some muscles or, or, or grow some muscles in maybe not breaking them, but, but pushing boundaries a little bit, because I think that is where some, some change can happen in the classroom and internally for an educator. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about how you've pushed the envelope a little bit in teaching uh, these medical students and everything. And you're teaching them about, you're trying to raise their awareness and help them tap into the humanity and the heart and that doctor-patient relationship and how do you develop that and everything. And you are using a, a very, I love the approach you're using. You want to talk about it, how, how yeah. you're getting them to tap into that humanity? Yeah, I'd love to. So um, 
we're only given the experience that we have in our sort of myriad identity that we have. So I'm a straight white male who grew up in an evangelical household and still identify as a, as a Christian. And so people hear that and some people are cringing and some people are cheering and, and I, I wish neither of them would do either of those things. <laughs> um, but the point being that I can only relate so much to anybody that doesn't align on, on any number of those factors of identity. And that's the case with all these students. You know, they might, you might have a student who is, is on a mar- in a marginalized or minoritized um, identity. And how do they relate to somebody in Western North Carolina who grew up in a holler and, um, and has a red Trump hat on, you know, where do we go? How do we find ways to communicate respectfully and lovingly across these boundaries? So um, one of the approaches that I didn't invent, but I certainly adopt wholeheartedly is narrative medicine. So one of the things we've done this semester, which is a semester in which we're focusing on communicating across uh, boundaries of identity is um, we brought in a, a poet in Winston-Salem uh, named Jason to white. She's a black female uh, and she does a number of things, but one of the things she does, I think best is probably write poetry. And she shared with the class a poem about the, the black female experience as a patient and the class. So she read her poem out loud. The class spent probably 30 minutes unpacking it, you know, like you would in a poetry or an English class talking about metaphor, how it deals with time and meaning and story. And, um, and then after that, we wrote reflectively to a prompt. So she came up with a prompt based on our discussion and the students write for five minutes, sort of freehand. Um, they actually typed because very few people handwrite anymore, which is a hard hurdle for me to get across. But when they all, when you have, you know, uh, 90 students typing in a room, it kind of sounds like rain. So I've, I've redeemed the non-handwriting through that metaphor. But anyway, they write reflectively for five minutes. And then after that, they share what they've written. And um, it's, I would say, the exact opposite of a nuts and bolts. You know, um, in the Matrix, Keanu Reeves, they download Kung Fu into his brain. And he says something, he knows Kung Fu. And and this is not that, you know, learning to practice medicine is not learning, is not downloading how to treat um HIV into your brain. It's learning what is the story of an HIV patient and, um, and, and who are they and what affects um, whether or whether or not they're going to take their medicine every day and, um, and what, their, what their relationship to somebody in a white coat might look like. Um, so uh, the, the point being that this exercise of reading a poem, speaking with the author about it, writing sort of your own thoughts and being able to look at those thoughts on a page and letting a classmate look at those thoughts out loud with you, I think changes our heart and our mind about people. Um, and, and I'm pretty sure it does. There's some research that suggests it does. And anecdotally, I would say that it really affects students in a really neat way. Um, you know, in a class of 90 students at a private school in the South, you're going to get people all along the spectrum of cultures and politics. And um, what I see happening, which is the most encouraging thing I've seen in the last, really since like 2015, is that people along that spectrum don't have a lot to argue with each other about. They have a lot to talk with each other about. And, um, and this has created that context, I think. So we, we've done this with Jason to White, as I mentioned. At the end of this unit of study, we're doing it with a piece of uh, fiction by George Saunders, which I don't know if you've read George Saunders, but he is a really inventive writer and it's about um, the white working class. It's a, a short story called Puppy, um, which is pretty brutal, but um, also is gonna be a really cool context to talk about um, 
a, a different type of person than Jacinta White is. And so, yeah, that's been my approach that I don't know how to really change people's heart or mind or character toward other people without invoking story. And this is the way we've done that. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. And, and story is about culture and culture mm-hmm. as defined in world languages is um, products, practices, and perspectives. So you have to learn about all those things that uh, people are bringing, you know, f- from their culture to the table uh, every right. day. And yeah. Um, yeah. And it helps us to couch our judgment of those things and, and brings in more of an inqui- inquiring mind and a, in a, in a questioning mm-hmm. uh, spirit rather than a, a judging or objective spirit. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the connection I'm making with what you're talking about with your medical students, and they're going to be dealing with patients, but there's that relationship and there's that communication and how we're going to understand and develop that relationship, uh, both kind of meet in the middle sort of thing. It's the same in the classroom. And I don't care if you're an elementary school teacher with a kindergartner that kindergartner is still a human being. They still will have personalities. They're going to have a cultural perspective they're bringing to the table. And yeah, it's, it becomes, are you as a teacher willing to look at that student and see all of who he or she is or Mm -hmm. they are Mm -hmm. and, um, and just accept that and work with that. Yeah. You know, our brain's, our brains want to categorize everything, which makes us really efficient uh, beings. Uh, it makes us good at practicing the nuts and bolts of medicine or education. But um, but that categorization can oftentimes lead to bias and, and discrimination. And so mm-hmm. holding that at bay and listening to story, I think helps kind of influence our approach to people. Mm-hmm. So one of the questions I was going to ask you was, what do you think that teachers need to be successful, but I think maybe you've already answered that in that they need a little bit of freedom to be themselves and to deliver the content um, in the way that they see is best for them and the, with their students and, and everything. But would you, what, what would you add to that? Yeah, I would say um, starting out with self-awareness, you know, uh, I think it was Socrates that said the, the unexamined life is not worth living, which might be overstating it a little bit. Um, but certainly starting out with this is my kind of personality. And I could either, you know, if you're somebody that that falls into line really easily in systems, you know, big systems hurt people. I, I think most people that aren't leading those big systems would agree with that statement. And so if you're somebody that falls into line with the rules really quickly, um, uh, be aware of that. And if you're somebody that uh, pushes against the rules as a natural reaction, be aware of that. So, you know, anytime I've found myself in the midst of transactional leadership above me, it's been really hard for me not to buck against that. And, um, and I've, you know, hurt myself, hurt my family, certainly delayed um, some success because of that personality trait. Now I'm 39. I think I've learned a lot of lessons and I'm, and or maybe I just finally found myself under leadership that isn't like that and, and feel some freedom there to be myself. Um, but I think, so anyway, I, I think starting out with some self-awareness of what your personality is 
and then knowing how to work within those systems um, or when to leave a system and, and find something else is super important uh, because I think what the world would have us do and, uh, and what is probably the easiest thing for some people to do is just to kind of cow down to it and become a, a little bit of an automaton. And, um, and that, and the world doesn't need that. The world needs people who are alive and, um, engaging all their humanity on their work, whether they're a teacher or an electrician or a fisherman or, um, and, uh, so that's a really big, vague answer to your question. What do they need? They need leaders who allow them the freedom to be themselves, um, encourage them to grow, um, and some self-awareness and, and sort of engaging their heart in a way that makes them feel alive, whether that's in or out of work or, or really both, I think are important things. And, and unfortunately, I think that a lot of us are fighting an uphill battle. We're in a culture in communities that make it hard to connect with people, hard to be seen and known and um, hard to have space and moments to reflect. So I think we need a lot. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, we're, we're ever evolving into, you know, the better version of ourselves. That's all we can ask for. Tomorrow, I'm going to be a little bit better than I was today. And I'm going to learn a little bit more. Um, if it's in my Spanish class or watching Jeopardy or mm -hmm. in this relationship with this new person in my life who's having an influence, what are the lessons and um, what mm -hmm. are we learning from it? And something you had said, again, before we started recording about um, heroes versus superheroes. You want to talk mm -hmm. a little bit about that? Yeah. So my wife is a stay-at-home mom and she is homeschooling our kids because of the pandemic. Um, but and, and I have another friend who's an English teacher in high school and really loves his job. And at the beginning of the pandemic, I think everybody suddenly realized that stay-at-home parents and teachers um, are pulling a lot more weight than we were giving them credit for, certainly more weight than we were paying them for. And you heard all, all these slogans, saw banners and billboards and stuff that teachers are superheroes. Um, we didn't see any banners about stay-at-home parents, but even uh, healthcare workers being superheroes. And I was reflecting on the idea that, uh, I don't think this is my original idea. I probably osmotically found it in a meme or something somewhere, but the idea that do we need superheroes? Like the idea of a superhero is that it's not natural and that you have some superhuman strength in order to practice that. Um, but none of us have that. None of us are superhuman. We're just humans trying to show up to work every day. So I think that language of the superhero in the medical field or in education or in the home is really like, we're going to reward you with this term because you're doing more than you ought to be doing. And, um, and that's because systems lean on you more heavily than they ought to. And they're not being resourced as well as they ought to. Um, so we'll give you this sort of booby prize that we, we now recognize you're a superhero and by the way, we want you to keep doing it and we're not going to change. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that was highlighted by COVID. I think COVID kind of drained the, the water a little bit. And the things that emerged were things that were already a little bit tough. And we saw that the, it made it just tough enough that 80% of us finally recognized it that hadn't recognized it before. Um, so I, I, I think, you know, where do we go from here? Um, I you know, I'm a little bit of a pessimist, but I think it's going to be an uphill battle recognizing how do we allow teachers to be heroes rather than superheroes 
and allow moms and dads to be heroes instead of superheroes and PAs and doctors and nurses um, to just show up and do their work within the boundaries of uh, a safe balance in your life and um, and feeling like you're still engaging your humanity in that work. So from that, you know, the message that that I see is that teachers are heroes and we don't have to be superheroes. That's how we get burnout. And some administrators use that to their advantage, like, oh, you you need to be the superhero. You need to go above and beyond, but we just need to be heroes because like we've seen with your you know, pathway and everything, we all are influencing others in life and uh, teachers, you know, moms, whoever you are, you are showing up and you are having an impact on somebody else in a relationship with them, whether it's in the classroom, in the home or whatever. And so Joseph Campbell and the whole hero's journey, answer the calling. What are you meant to do? Who are you? And how are you going to show up in this world? And when you do that, you're a hero. Yeah. You're just yeah. a hero. I think that's, that's right. So if you could ask yourself three questions, who am I? Um, how am I going to show up is another way of saying, um, what do I feel really called to? Mm -hmm. And I would say, I never felt called to medicine. I do feel called to people and I can feel called to people as somebody working with fish farmers in Latin America. I can feel called to patients as people and I can feel called to students as people. Um, and so your calling doesn't have to be, well, I'm going to be an electrical engineer and I'm going to invent some kind of little bit that goes in a, you know, I don't even know the terms because I changed my major, but, um, but, but I can be called to something a little bit more, you know, a calling engages our heart more so than, um, than our mind, I think. And, and so who am I? What am I going to do for this world? And, and what do I need in order to do that? And that addresses not only my own needs internally, but what kind of system do I need to operate in that allows me to flourish and allows me to fight for the flourishing of those people in my sort of realm of influence to borrow from my friend, Steve. Mm -hmm. That's a bigger life lesson. That's a bigger life journey. And um, this is what we're learning every day. A little bit mm -hmm. more about who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? Yeah. And how am I going to show up and answer that calling mm -hmm. and share my light with the world? And yeah. Um, yeah. So very critical. So, all right. Well, are you ready for the, the test at the end? No, it's just the answer. <laughs> just just an fill in the blanks, whatever you want. It's no, no right or wrong answer. Okay. Okay. Let's go. All right. So teaching is. Fun. The first thing that comes to mind. Yeah. I absolutely love teaching. Good. That's, that's a good thing. And I'm sure your students think it's fun too. If you think it's fun. A teacher's greatest strength is. I think convictions are the first thing that comes to mind. Um, that's what's going to keep me tied to teaching well and teaching the right things. Mm -hmm. Answering your calling to your purpose. Mm -hmm. convictions. Yeah. A teacher's greatest weakness is. Oh, for me, that would be my ego. I love being up front. <laughs> so we spoke a little bit earlier you know humility is a really good thing it's a it's a hot commodity in my life At times when I find myself flat on my face where I think okay 
we're going to get up and we're not going to go down that road again. Or, you know, uh, yeah, my ego can probably be the biggest weakness for me. Yes, I think it is for everyone. I mean, if you think back to teachers in the classroom that have a lot of discipline issues or have, you know, conflicts with students or parents or whatever, um, if you really step back, if that teacher were to step back and look at it, it's, it's, it's about their ego, you know, that right. they've been offended in some way, or they want to have control over everything, or um, their expectations have been, they, there's disappointment. We're all human. And yeah. the more we can step aside and look at who we really are and who we want to be and how we want to show up and then make the choices that align with that, yeah. then, then the ego, you know, takes a back seat and yeah, life I think gets better. The the antidote to that is keeping the student at the center of the stage, right? Mm -hmm. Like how's the best way I can help this person develop into what they're here to develop into. And, and that kind of takes the pressure off me. It's, it's in the spotlight off of me in a sense, the spotlight becomes the student and the, Mm -hmm. and the curriculum. Mm -hmm. It should be my advice to anyone who feels called to teach would be I would say be patient and and find places to teach. So this was, I was 15 and I guarantee you at least every third or fourth day since I was 15, I thought, I thought about that phrase in my yearbook and I thought, well, I'm not teaching yet. And if I look back on, on it, I, I was teaching, um, uh, maybe not so much in my undergrad, but as soon as I was in grad school, I was teaching graduate classes as a TA. And then I went to Ecuador and was working with these small smallholder farmers. And, um, there was some teaching involved there. I was teaching myself. Um, and I always felt like, well, I need a formal title or a formal role. And that's really not true. You know, I've been a parent now for almost 13 years. And I think if I had recognized 13 years ago that, I mean, I knew teaching was part of it, but if I had really adopted the role, uh, and sort of internalized it, I think I would have been a better dad sooner. Um, uh, so yeah, I would say be patient and also just look for opportunities to teach because I, I do think that there's something inherent in people who are called to teach that, that, that they're going to be good at it if they engage it with patience. And, um, so yeah, there's opportunities everywhere to teach with humility, right? Like not everybody needs to be taught. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to be the sage on the stage or the one in front of the classroom. Every exactly. person you interact with in life you're yeah. a teacher and a learner at the same time in that yeah. relationship it, for sure. It, and to that, to that point, asking questions is often the best pedagogy, right? Um, mm-hmm. Like a, a probing or Socratic question does way more than telling somebody what the right answer is. Here, here. Yeah. M- last one. My hope for all children is. Mm. The first word that comes to mind is safety. You know, you you mentioned Bloom's taxonomy versus the hierarchy of, of needs, um, and I grew up in a in a culture that most of us were not we're we're at the upper echelon of that hierarchy of needs, and so it wasn't really on my mind until um, later in life. You know, it wasn't really a reality to me that some some students, especially young students, are still at a place in a school environment that they are looking for food and shelter. And, um, and so starting at, at the margins, I think is, I mean, you asked the question, that's the first thing that came to mind is safety. Can we, 
provide an environment that is safe for, for everybody as a starting point, right? Mm -hmm. Like hopefully we aim for all these really high ideals for students, but are we providing environments that see every student and care for every student? Um, you know, within boundaries, obviously, but, um, and then in doing so, are we influencing the culture in a way that's going to continue to care for all individuals? Mm-hmm. And safety could be just um, not correcting the child right away or yelling at them and saying, how many times have I taught you this and you still are not getting it, you know, letting yeah. them feel affirmed, seen and heard, like you said, mm-hmm. and then willing, they feel safe enough to take a risk to try again. Right. And not do, shut they, down. do they feel seen and known? I think as a starting point. And that brings in all the questions of, is there um, space in the classroom for feelings seen and known? You know, is it a relational classroom? Is the instructor or teacher aware of personal bias? I certainly come into a classroom with certain biases and people say certain terms about themselves or others. And you have that cringing moment where you think, do I correct that after class or, or do I say something right now? And, and so I think just being very aware, it's a lot of work, obviously. It's, it's you know, in the words of Mad-Eye Moody, constant vigilance, right? Um, we, we can't really let up. Yeah. Well, Ethan, this has been so heartwarming, heart-filling, heart-rewarding, and um, thank you for taking what I wrote in your yearbook seriously, because now you're passing it on to your students, and it just keeps being paid forward, so. Yeah, this is wonderful. It's really a watershed moment for me. Um, You know, we talked about stories, and this is, you know, to some degree, the completing of the circle of this story that... um, that I was sort of this lackadaisical um, bored kid until I walked into your class that day. Um, And really as an educator, you changed it for me. So I owe you so much for where I'm at. Well, I owe you and all of my students so much for where I am too. I love that you made a circle with your finger because that is life. It's a circle, not to quote Lion King, but um, it's, it's not linear. Yeah. It's not linear. And, you know, we look at life linearly. I look back, I look forward, and then we feel stuck and we, you know, no, it's circular. It's always, That's right. Yeah. We can be just as present in a past moment or a future moment as we are now. And that can sometimes be a problem, right? Um, mm-hmm, for sure. But, but those moments are always uh, easy for us to access. And, and so I think of reality as like, I could go daydream and think of myself in eighth grade again. I don't know if it's always healthy. (laughs) (laughs) No, we just have to keep moving forward and uh, learning and growing, but thank you again. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you. Senora Markley. Uh, Pablito. (laughs) De nada. (laughs) Hello again, everyone. This is your host, Linda Markley. And I'd like to invite you to nominate a teacher to be a guest on the podcast and to share their story. All you have to do is go to www.spiritofteaching.org and fill out the nomination form. Again, that's www.spiritofteaching.org. Also, please share, rate, and give some feedback to help us better serve you in the spirit of teaching. Thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to having you back next time on Teacher Tales.